0: Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. Uh, today, we're coming from Glasgow, where we're at the British Sociological Association annual conference, and we're joined by Reva Yunus. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, where you've come from?
1: Okay, so, so um, I'm working at the Azim Premji University right now in Bangalore, India. I'm working at the School of Liberal Studies and I'm teaching a sociology of education course to a bunch of mixed uh, major students, so these are humanities, biology, physics majors, and I'm teaching them sociology of education, so it's an education minor option that's available at the department.
0: And what does sociology of education involve in the Indian context?
1: So, It's easy for me if I talk about the way I've structured the course itself. So I did the first unit on history of education. So the current um, system that we have of formal education was introduced during colonial rule. So I talk about that with my students a little bit. Um, How did it frame the kind of ideal educational subject that was there under colonial rule? Who was education meant for, and who were the people from India who were actually able to benefit from it? Which was typical: the traditional, uh, traditionally dominant groups were able to benefit it from uh, benefit from it more. But there was also a certain kind of response to colonialism, which involved a sort of elite nationalism, which was looking at women and it was looking at questions of gender and caste in a very specific way. So for example, formal education then meant that women's education was imagined within that nationalist response, the framework of that nationalist response. And so they wanted, uh, they had this idea of an upper-caste middle-class woman who would reproduce the national and cultural, uh, so so the woman represented the nation basically. And so through education she was, supposed to become better at that cultural representation and reproduction. So you reproduce a traditional Indian set of values. Um, and this kind of imagination also elided the problems that were there with caste and class. So if you're looking at distribution of, uh, if you're looking at land ownership patterns or you're looking at hierarchies of, and social exclusion, then that was sort of elided within that nationalist imagination of education. And that has continued in post-independence India. And so that's where we began so and the British were very um, they talked about it how they it was all about the white man's burden to educate people and so on and so the 19th century was basically about um, the so it was moving from the East India Company to now the British government actually ruling so now uh, India and so they had already got the empire now it was a question of managing and administering the empire and making sure that it was sustained so they needed a lot of educated indians to then help them administer the huge nation state and if you look at the size of india and the diversity they needed people (laughs) from that country to basically be able to support the colonial rulers um, that was their agenda and there was also, there was a bit of an attempt at evangelizing but that's not how it worked. How it worked was actually, the effect in in the end was not so much about religion, it was more about the spread of the language, English language and English education. And that helped us, uh, that helped the elite consolidate their position through education and in education in the Indian context. And post-independence India has not really tried very hard to disrupt that, um, hierarchy, which was produced within education and also through education, it's always about both those things. We haven't tried very hard, and then early 1990s, late 1980s, neoliberalism, neoliberalism happened, so then we kind of gave up on that anyway. So. That was one of the moments when we moved from the, what we call the first principle of principles of equality, like about egalitarianism. Instead of that, we were looking at second principles of equality, which is more about compensatory justice. So from, for example, you would go from a universal uh, subsidy or a welfare scheme to a, like a targeted kind of thing, which is looking at specific groups of people. So we are no longer talking about education being an egalitarian system or leading to a more egalitarian society but a lot of these things began under colonial rule but it's always i think it's always useful to look at these things in terms of how uh, local hierarchies and social relations interact with colonial policies and so the the way the place where the british were clever about it is was that they were very selective so they are talking about equality and so on or they're talking about how india is a very um, stratified society or caste as a, untouchability is a bad idea and so on. But at the same time, they didn't always intervene uh, in a way that would help the lower caste groups or that would help the women. So for example, the way they treated Adivasi women in India was very different from the way they treated the elite upper caste women in India. And that has been documented by uh, feminist historians in India. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Was
0: amazing, by the way. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we're all just we all just sat here, just like nodding. Sorry, because I, just for, the, just I I haven't
1: answered your question. No, you sorry. Question, <laughs> that was, that was brilliant.
0: I just want to ask, and this is in relation to education as well, because I think it will help um, our audience understand um, systems of hierarchy in India a little bit more. But can you tell us? a basic introduction into the caste system in India and then we can we can sort of look at that in relation to education as well because i think it's it's something that i think even academics that i mean western academics feel like they have a assumed knowledge of but actually i think it's better to come from someone who has lives and is from India to talk about what it is how it plays out does that make sense it does but i would like to start with a disclaimer
1: yep. the caste system is this, the structure and the effects are not uniform across the country okay the system also there are pockets where the system doesn't work uh, at all there are other kinds of social inequalities that are more important um, and so, for example, in the north, uh, northern part of India, in the what's called the Hindi belt, which is Haryana, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Uttar Pradesh, and Bihar, Jharkhand, uh, the caste system looks different. And in states in the southern states like Tamil Nadu, Kerala, Karnataka, Andhra, it would look quite different. So I'm only I would limit my comments to the Hindi belt, to okay. the, to a part of the northern of northern India. And so Uma Chakravarti, for example, is one of the feminist historians who has done excellent work on theorizing gender and caste uh, relations in India and uh, okay so it's basically based on it's a system of graded inequality which is based on the idea of ritual purity and pollution so before we became a nation state under british colonial rule we were a society which was organized more around everyday rituals so the religious aspects were important and so the state the the, the relationship between the state and the society itself was very different it was not. The kind of state and society that you imagine within a European uh, nation-state kind of framework, so so the the three mm. units—the indiv- in individual, the society, and the state itself—was would have to be imagined in a very different way in a, in pre-colonial India, and so. I can give references like, Mm, so Sudhita Kaviraj Kaviraj is one person who has done very good work. He has an article on this, on how the imagination of the state and society itself was different and the relationship was different. So the state left the society alone in a lot of ways in like deciding locally what the social relations and customs are. So now if you're looking at the caste system, it's been there for a long time and uh, Uma has done work on that. And uh, it's, like I said, it's based on graded, uh, it's a graded system uh, based on ritual purity and pollution. So there are groups like the Brahmins who who were also, one of the things they did was they were the priests in temples. And so they were considered to be ritually the purest. So they are the ones who are closest to God in that sense. And they can perform all the ceremonies and so on. They have access to the sacred knowledge. And this was the most important thing at that time and then there were the kshatriyas who were uh, the people who sort of protected the state and who were but eventually the brahmins who had monopoly over this over sacred knowledge also needed to be close to the kshatriyas so that duo always had so that was the group that continues to have monopoly over educational institutions even now so some of these are the upper castes who had uh, uh, who had uh, knowledge uh, control over uh, sacred knowledge, and then when it became more sort of secular knowledge in post-independence India, they still these are still the communities that would uh, dominate educational spaces, formal education spaces in India. Then there were the other backward classes, which is basically half of the population in the regions I'm talking about, but in itself it's a very widely like varied group. So within the, they're called OBCs, and see these are the, some of the terms, those, right? OBCs, other backward classes. Now, this is an administrative category. This is not a social category. Right. So when you look at classified matrimonial ads in Indian newspapers, they would get into all sorts of details about religion, caste, gotras, all sorts of subdivisions. These are the social cultural categories that make sense to people in in their everyday lives, whereas uh, when you say scheduled castes, which are the former untouchable castes, the that that is the scs or the obcs like i said are the Sorry. backward classes sc standing for scheduled castes these okay. are the groups that were formerly untouchable groups within the hindu caste system yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so the so other the backward caste Sorry.
1: thing the, uh, the other backward classes are uh, non dominant caste groups right. but they are still not untouchables okay okay only the scs or they are called they are also called dalits uh, they were the untouchable groups, yeah. right? So now what I'm so trying to say is that, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm mixing administrative and social categories sometimes, mm-hmm. but the two uh, two serve very different functions. So when you have a nation state, you need the administrative categories to decide which are the backward groups, what kind of welfare benefits they need, what kind of sk- targeted you know schemes to help them improve like empowerment and upliftment and so on. But the which backward is... is. Yeah, but you will be surprised. So upper castes, for example, are represented in a lot of statistical tables as forward castes, which is annoying. So these are some of the. So the nomenclature itself is something that Dalit people have questioned and challenged, and they have. So right now there is a debate among Dalit groups whether as to whether the term Dalit itself is something they like or they don't like it. It what purpose does it serve? Is it derogatory? Is it uh, is it something, it's, 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 also an, it's also a political identity that people have very proudly owned up to. So for example, uh, the elite groups borrow a lot from um, black activists and scholars in the US. And not so much from the UK, I think. The kind of activism I've seen on social media and uh, on the streets, is more like, uh, they, they do find uh, anti-race uh, activism from the US, for example, very, very useful. In articulating the problems, and also there's a lot. There are Dalits who have gone to the U.S. and faced caste system within the Indian community there. And yeah. so, then Maurice on the Rajan is one person from the U.S.A., for example, who is a very well-known um, activist. And uh, so, people. So there is that link across borders between these things.
2: So I've been looking at that kind of that region, so India, as well as looking at China. Uh, so in, I know India's having this big push, like Made in India. There's a big push to push India onto the world stage, and that's. It seems like a kind of a, a rejection of kind of western notions of the nation state and moving to ideas of India as a civilization going back thousands of years and using those kind of so rejected the idea of this kind of the education is a universal a kind of egalitarian thing universalizing but this is very particular this kind of shift to the civilization is very particular so it focuses more on India's past it almost starts reinforcing the things that you've, like things like the car system, picking up that more and shift that more into education. So there is more of a divide and people should kind of be proud of these things now. Given the kind of success India and China have having with this new mode of looking at their past in a different way and bring that past into the, into the active present has worked because I've seen outside like Chinese companies that are invest more into India. So for example, the first, cause you just mentioned Samsung phones are being made in India rather than outsiders before India were outsourcing stuff to China. So this kind of shift, it, does that kind of work with, I don't know, this particularism, is it a hindrance in education or is it a kind of, is, does it work? I don't, I don't know, I don't know.
1: Mm, okay, so this is a very difficult, uh, not difficult, but uh, <laughs> important question to ask and answer at this point of time. Because in India, Uh, for the last five years, the person who's been prime minister, Narendra Modi, is actually known to be a very right-wing person and to represent right-wing interests and a very right-wing Hindu nationalist party. So that's one version of this particularism. That's one version of remembering, uh, one way of remembering uh, Indian civilization as thousands of years old and so on, and some kind of like, you know, a golden period that was disrupted first by the Mughals and then by the British and so on. Now it's an extremely problematic version because one thing is that it puts the Mughals and the British in the same category, which doesn't work. If you look at the way the Mughals, the amount of time they spend, and they actually moved to India. They didn't transfer the resources and the wealth like the British did back to Britain. The Mughals were there. I'm not saying that all the Mughal kings were great kings. All I'm saying is that the way they contributed to Indian civilization is very different from the experience that Indians had with the British. The extraction that the yeah, British Exactly. Yeah. So so yeah. like actually like trunks full of like gold and precious stones and so on going back to and the way they Interfered, intervened uh, in the, interfered in the textile trade, the fabric trade, and so on, and a lot of, the, so a lot of industries, a lot of occupations died out under British rule. Now that was not the way the Mughals interacted with the Indian. Uh, I think I'm also more conscious of it because I am part Hindu, part Muslim, and I deal with this problem. Like I willingly wouldn't go and live in North India at all. Though I grew up in Central India, I don't want to live there anymore. <laughs> I'm afraid to have kids in India because. I wouldn't want you know to uh, for them to have to deal with these kinds of, the of stigmatization
0: things. of Muslims.
1: It's Stigmatization—it's physically like not safe anymore. Yeah. So, so the kind of particularism that you're talking about, this is just one version. See, there was another version with the with uh, when we were responding to colonial rule. There was one of the one imagination of the nation as a Hindu nation. That was one kind of thing. The other was that of a more something that was more in line with the fr- like European nation state which was like, they were talking about the values in in the sense. In a way, the Hindu nation state was, the that idea of Hindu nationalism is also inspired from the European nation state because it's one God, one country, one religion, which was never going to be possible in India. It's not possible now, which is why there's a lot of resistance to this government, this regime, right? But both of, but the framework of the nation state remains. One is a secular imagination, the other one is a militant nationalist Hindu uh, nation. Right? So both of these things are there. And then for a lot of people, neither of these imaginations matter. What matters is livelihood. And so they're not thinking in terms of the scale at which they think and imagine their lives is not the nation state. They are thinking about their locality and the local economic situation and the availability of jobs and so on. And the India-China relationship is quite complex. Mm-hmm. So saying, and see, Uh, even saying that both of these are uh, the same kinds of growing economies doesn't work, because in India, again, redistribution has not happened for a very different set of reasons compared to China, but it hasn't happened. But at the same time, in a way, democracy worked a lot better. In lots of ways, it worked a lot better in India than it did in China. And this government has, for example, systematically undermined a lot of democratic institutions from the Election Commission to uh, the University Grants Commission, a lot of uh, institutions and uh, practices that hold up a democracy on an everyday basis have been undermined by this government. And in terms of economics, also though they have st- they had all these campaigns of start in uh, start-up India, make in India, and so on, it actually hasn't worked. And there's a lot of data available now because elections are happening right now in India. It started on April 11th, and the results are due on May 23rd. And the economic strategies that they they claim that oh this will work hasn't actually a lot of it hasn't worked. In fact, in now, the thing is, is this economic vision related to that particularist uh, imagination of the nation? I'm not sure. It's just that the same government did both the things.
2: In the West, how it's portrayed in the West, especially the narrative <laughs> over here, is yeah. that it's, it's matched up. So the, the economic miracle is part of the kind of link to the, that particular imagine that you are talking about, of the civilization state of the kind of right wing. How we put it in the West is like, so if there's economic success, all the, stuff, all the stuff doesn't matter, all the, kind of, all the different rivalries.
1: The, uh, let me just quickly uh, interrupt you right yeah. there. The thing is that the economic growth actually happened before this, these guys came to power, mm. and they are the ones who are imagining it as a right-wing Hindu nation. Mm. The, till the previous government was in power, there was there's always been that strand since uh, uh, before independence, but the, the other governments were always more secu- seen as more secular and acted as more secular okay. than this one. And so that, that was a different imagination of the nation, though I agree that the whole push for modernization, for industrialization and economic growth comes from an imagination, a particular kind of imagination of the Indian nation. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much for that, Reva. I feel like we could have got... No, I've not gone, talked about my like, yeah, research I know, or anything. I've talked have, about all kinds we of We could things. have... This is <laughs> really important stuff. Thank you so much, um, Reva. Um, yeah, you've been listening to Surviving Society at the BSA. We'll have a few more podcasts. Um, so stay tuned.